Okay, we're back. Uh, this is David, and this is I'm here with Richard Dalton. Be sure to listen to part one. So we were talking about how I got into ESL and some of the whole um, why I think ESL, teaching English. You know, Richard, we keep saying ESL and EFL, so why don't you tell them the difference? Yeah. ESL stands for English. English is a second language. EFL stands for English as a foreign language. ESL is when you're teaching English in a country where it's the predominant language that's spoken. So like teaching English to immigrants in the United States, that's ESL. EFL is if you were to move to China and teach English to all Chinese people, that would be English as a foreign language. So it's a And then we just add T's in the front of them. There's no TESOL and TEFL. They're all the same. Uh, of course, there's something called the TOEFL, which is an exam, a whole nother deal. Yeah. But I, I, I get these questions a lot. So I was telling a little bit about how I got into it from a strategic, um, how to engage a people, uh, how to enter a community in an organic, legitimate way and serve them. How did you get into this? Um, yeah, so I was, let's see, um, as as a teenager i knew that i wanted to do something with missions and i didn't have any idea what that looked like or meant um so started college and did you know did a semester and was like i don't know what i'm doing here (laughs) didn't have a much of a um, purpose as far as what i wanted to study but i knew that i wanted to be overseas and i wanted to be spending time in another culture and so i convinced my parents to give me kind of a gap year and um, started looking for just any and every opportunity. And um, I, I mean, growing up in a church where people frequently would raise support and go on mission trips and things, I was very much used to um, used to that. And so um, I was on Facebook one day and uh, my friend Jenny Williams was online and I messaged her and um, at they, her and her husband lived in Baku, Azerbaijan, and ran, uh, were part of a team that ran a cafe and language school. And um, literally right there in Messenger just was like, can I come over and teach English? Do I need anything? I'm 19. I have no degree. I have no anything. <laughs> and she was like, yes, please. We need younger single people who can hang out with students easier than we can because we're mostly families with kids. And um, I didn't know anything about Azerbaijan, um, or that part of the world, or I didn't care, just wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was like, game on, let's go. And, um, that, that was in, uh, the late October of 2008. And by New Year's Day, I was in Baku. <laughs> So I spent basically a couple of months raising support, um, convincing my family that this made sense and, um, finding, yeah, just figuring out how to pay for it and, um, you know, talking to Sunday school classes and. So literally you stood up and taught English for the first time. No no idea what I was doing. Richard, I think you should have gone through Connect (laughs) Tuffle. If I could have gotten a hold of you. Oh, wait, we didn't have Connect Tuffle. I had like a a four hour training when I got there. It was, it was. um, But you were, I remembered you already loving English and having 
I mean, in your mind, language. Yeah. Fortunately, um, in school, humanities came naturally to me. Yeah. Science and math, more so math, not so much. Um, I think that jumping in front of a classroom could have could have freaked some people out, but you you jumped in pretty well. Yeah. But the great thing about EFL environments is that you know so many places like this are just stoked to have a native speaker who's a real American who can you know and so no one was even they're hearing a native speaker yeah yeah and it was very conversational it wasn't very formal and um so yeah I mean so I got thrown in and I remember my first class that I ever taught was an hour and a half long I finished my lesson plan in 45 minutes now and what do I, I do? Was standing there going, oh no, what do I do for the next half of this class? And um, but pretty quickly, I I found the talent that I have in teaching mm-hmm. and was able to kind of ride on that over the seven months I was there and learned a lot, of course, about how to prepare and how to lead a class. And but that's how um, you learn to teach is teaching. You really do. You really don't learn how to teach from reading academic right. things. You need the un- you need that. It's practice. That's, but you got to get in there yeah, and start yeah. doing it. And it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. Um, but I found that the more that I was just myself and the more that I just relaxed and enjoyed my time and enjoyed my students, the easier it became and the um, lowering the expectations cuz that teaching a language is messy. It's it's um it, it never kind of goes the way you think it will. And English is messy because our rules are crazy. Yeah, English is tricky and messy. And, and you're like, well, that's what that's the grammatically correct way to say it, but let me tell you what mm-hmm. you're going to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in that experience, I felt like I was really in my element. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved, Baku at the time was a hard place for me to live. I think it is just, it is a hard place for Americans to live. Um, it's a very, um, it's a beautiful place. It's a wonderful place. Beautiful people. Former Soviet. Yeah. Former. It's a former Soviet country, north of Iran, south of Russia. With Islam um, yeah, so, and culture. So it's, 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 it's um, mostly, most Azeris are Muslim, um, but from a former Soviet background. So most of the country is bilingual. They speak Azerbaijani, the Turkic language, and then speak Russian as well. Um, very cold place in the winter, very windy. It's kind of got Chicago vibes like that. Um, so that, that for me, I, I just was in my element. I had an amazing time, had some amazing friendships and experiences and realized this kind of adventure of teaching language and travel and culture is me and it's what I want to do and who I am. And so, um, the people made it warmer there. You were in a very mm-hmm. cold, concrete, mm-hmm. stark place, mm-hmm. but drinking coffee yep. with Azerbaijanis. Yep. It was wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And about halfway through, I was like, I need a break. I need a vacation, and I had met you once mm-hmm. at First of Ann. Right, and, um, our church. Got your email from Christy Sisk mm-hmm. and asked, and just emailed you, hey, can I come visit? <laughs> and at the time, I had been telling my church, I don't really have any short-term trips where you could bring, you know, like 
12 college students. I don't know what to do with you in Turkey, but if you want to send one or two and let them just tag along and and watch Mm -hmm. my life Mm -hmm. and I could Mm -hmm. speak into their life because that Mm -hmm. was my heart at that time, was beginning to think about how to mentor people Mm -hmm. into this and said, come on. And so as I'm trying to get a, so much of that time period of my life was about getting a vision and trajectory for who I was going to be in my uh, work for the kingdom and uh, vocationally what I was going to be about and all of these things. So seeing that with the Williams and the team that I was with was instrumental. And then visiting you and Vicki and Emily and Lizzie was also um, instrumental because just seeing how normal your life was and how I think when I first showed up to y'all's apartment, you were just having breakfast and then mm-hmm. you got up and went to work and I went with you to the office and then... And, um, and we started talking about my journey with ESL in U of M, you back in Memphis. I feel like when I look back on that time, I feel like we just walked around Izmir for like four days mm-hmm. and talked, talked, just talked for mm-hmm. hours and mm-hmm. hours and hours. And I told you my journey and you just started connecting with that. Yeah. So a lot of stuff began to make a lot of sense for me. Um, so then when I came back to the United States, I um, was like, okay, now I know what I'm doing in school. And so I made teaching English as a second language my major. I guess English with a concentration in that. Um, loved history and I was also studying that. Um, and then... I um, was volunteering at Intensive English for Internationals, um, the language program on campus, and um, making friends with the international students on campus and just kind of beginning to see what that kind of lifestyle could be like in Memphis. And really struggled with uh, reverse culture shock coming back to the United States. That was hard. Um, But then, then... Ended up getting a job at IEI and um, then started my master's. And then... Then you start to really think deeper about this field. Mm -hmm. And then as a Christian, Mm -hmm. you began to integrate your faith with it, which is kind of one of the things... That's what we're sort of calling this, faith in ESL, because it's how we as Christians interact Mm -hmm. with this Mm -hmm. field. And I, I had been discipled in a lot of, um, with a lot of emphasis on evangelism and discipleship mm-hmm. and seeing, you know, my, my entrance into ESL was about missions. I entered it as a Christian on mission mm-hmm. and then found the career and vocation as something valid in itself to enjoy and work in. And then... Be that really in college, um, I started to work out what I've. I, I started to feel some tensions between the um, um, tensions between what I believed the Lord asked us to do on mission and what was um, what it meant to be a professional in teaching ESL. So. Um, for example, what's the, what's the place of evangelism in the classroom Mm. or the, these kinds of questions. Um, and I ended up working with, um, an undergrad, I had an independent study with a professor. She's not a Christian and, um, she's a dear friend of mine who her perspective was really helpful for me in helping me work through those questions because she was very affirming of my faith and very affirming of 
the convictions that I had around discipleship and evangelism. Um, but was able to offer me the perspective of someone who didn't believe in Christianity um, from the viewpoint of maybe a student or someone uh, who would be in my classroom or someone who would hire me or mm -hmm. some that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that that was really challenging for me because I began to see that some of the perspectives that students might have or, or others who aren't Christians would see a Christian who is using ESL, you know, what in what ways could it be perceived? Mm -hmm. um, or, or uh, yeah, what are some of the perceptions? And so um, helped me understand these perspectives of how a Christian using ESL as a platform to do um, evangelism, discipleship, ministry could could be taken as something that's more of this bait and switch, deception, mm -hmm. manipulative, covert kind of thing. And and that that in itself was an exercise in cross-cultural learning because, it, I mean, that's kind of the name of the game in cross-cultural work is what are your intentions and what are your motives, but then how does your behavior impact the community that's around you? Um, we think so alike, Richard, because as you're talking, I think that's exactly what happened to me is when the more I begin to study, what are what is my audience, okay, both in my presence in a country but even as I come into a classroom, they're here. You know, either their family has paid for something or they paid for a lesson. I may think I have the, the most important message way beyond ESL in Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I have to remember, what it, where am I? Right. What, is the, what are they wanting from this? Right. But when we go overseas, we do add that, who are you and why are you here, which we talked about in our last podcast. But I think that when you begin to put an emphasis on this cross-cultural communication 101. What is your audience hearing? What are they there for? What are they needing? Mm -hmm. What have they asked for? Mm -hmm. And to be able to honestly give them mm -hmm. what you say you're giving them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is, I'm here to improve my English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we found it. we both were just so offended by the idea of, um, is that the most important thing? You know, that's kind of like saying I've come to a restaurant, I've ordered some food, and then they come out with some a booklet, and you say, <laughs> um, "When's my meal going to get ready?" <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. Yeah, and then you're like, "This isn't the best hamburger I've ever had." And so that that made me start to question: Is it possible to overemphasize evangelism? It almost felt like a heretical question. But these are the kinds of questions that were being presented to me from my friend, Dr. Reef. Mm -hmm. And so um, once I started thinking through that, I began to really question um, a lot of my theology, a lot of my, you know, I was beginning to form my own personal missiology and my own. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's perhaps for a different episode unpacking all of that, but that... Um, that answering those questions were very important to me because it, at the bottom of it, with, without going too much into it, it was about I had the world divided into sacred things and secular things. And um, that's problematic. And I, I don't believe that there's much of a place for that in Scripture or in the way a Christian should live. Um, and it, it helped me think along the lines of... Um, Really, the best the best kind of question that I was given was from my friend John Hodges, who said, "You know, if we had never sinned in the garden, 
what would we be doing? What would be the purpose of humanity? There would be no Ten Commandments, there would be no law, no Messiah, and, and none of that. Uh, what would life be like? And that, that helped me start to think through, well, we, the only thing that we were tasked to do by God was to just work, to make stuff, to build things. Develop things. And when you look grow in, things. Mm-hmm, when you look in Scripture, how it, it begins in a garden and it ends in a city, and the implication is that garden is cultivated by humanity to turn into this beautiful city. Mm. And it's in, you know, in Revelation 7 described this city um, where all of the nations are together praising the Lord. And um, so then it, it began to raise my perspective to, yes, of course, evangelism and discipleship is important, but it, it brought more nuance to it and it brought more dimensions to ministry and Christian living for me because then I, I began to think in terms of Okay, so we, we've, we want people to meet Jesus and we want people to find redemption in him so that they can get back to work. And so then I started to think about my students mm-hmm. who, I, I, it's, it's not ultimately my responsibility if they go to heaven or not or meet Jesus. That's up to the Holy Spirit. My witness can shine through the quality of my teaching and my professionalism and mm-hmm. the way that I treat them and the dignity that I bring into the classroom and these different things. Um, or in and, developing relationships outside of class, if things lead in that way. Sure, you, and, and that has... Uh, all kinds of things can happen and, and as you, the friendship develops. You would expect that this would be like faith sharing as a natural aspect of who we are, but it, it, it comes in a very multidimensional kind of expression. And so um, just, just finding that, you know, I had students who would... Like I've had students throughout my career so far who are surgeons and they come from Venezuela and they can they can literally like rebuild your face or someone who like a cognitive philosopher I taught one time who is helping autistic kids be able to function well in society and in academia academia like these but he needs English but needs English and so I'm sitting here thinking these are the people who are building the city of God mm-hmm. who are making our communities transforming our communities Mm -hmm. they're 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 immigrants they're Mm -hmm. migrants they're people who have untapped talent or maybe they have i mean i think about i i always joke that if i were to go on the operating table i want an immigrant operating on me because it's very likely they've been to medical school in their first language and then they came to the united states and they had to go to medical school again Mm -hmm. in english Mm-hmm. And have read that book twice. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of a soapbox for me. I feel pretty passionate about it. Um, I've just seen so much talent. And I've seen the image of God in student after student after student, across culture after culture after culture, and seen what they are bringing to my community. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, of course, you turn on the news and the media and you hear all this noise um, around immigrants, and it's so objectifying and unpersonal, and um, and there's no humanity in it. And then you contrast that with the experience that I've had day in and day out of teaching folks who are some of the most beautiful, wonderful people I've ever met in my life, and have have really kind of flipped around my thinking of what can I learn from from the communities that I'm teaching in. Mm-hmm. What you know, and and. 
So that um, has changed, that, that has deeply impacted the way that we have created Connect the Language Center. Um, there's a lot of exchange going there's on. There's so much exchange. It's not a one way. It's not, it's a, not about no. we're here to give you a product. They've come to enrich our culture, strengthen our communities. Mm-hmm. We talked about the Ameri- you know, we've talked about something called the American dream, which is coming to be given an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And just as you said, Richard, we until you have the right data and actually meet these people, we can come away often with in our mind caricatures of what we think an immigrant or a refugee is, and they're often incorrect. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's really fun to be wrong sometimes. I mean, I've had a student once. Her her last name was Otsuru, which is a Japanese word. She looked Japanese. She spoke Portuguese. She was from Rio de Janeiro, <laughs> and she's Brazilian, and she's part of the massive Japanese community that lives in southern Brazil. Wow. And as I, I just got to know her, and she's t- talking about her grandmother who came, to, who immigrated to Brazil after World War II, and how you know the different food that they eat, and the, the way they've combined Japanese and Brazilian food, and just being wrong over and over mm. and over again. Mm. Um, and by you meeting all these students, you're emphasizing again what we've been trying to say, which is. Sometimes we're very eye-centered. What is my vocation and what are my goals and what are we doing for these people? Mm-hmm. And we're forgetting, what are these people? Who are they? Mm-hmm. What are they here for? What are their goals? Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I wonder who's getting the most out of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so I found that. Mm-hmm. As well, even overseas, mm-hmm. not even in an immigrant situation. I'm an immigrant, and yet my students, the way they welcome me and the way there was this exchange mm-hmm. in that. And that's, the, I guess, what makes uh, language education so fun. Yeah. You're learning. Yeah. And to, to, be free, to be free to have a witness through professional, like a real vocation, like... Um, I've had interactions with students where they just sit me down and, and they're, they just start kind of interrogating me. Like why, like I had a student at the language center actually, who she was just like, what, what's the deal? I come in here and everyone is so friendly. This place feels just like light. She straight up asked me directly, are you Christians? And I was like, yes, that's exactly why we're doing what we're doing. <laughs> and she was like, I knew it. <laughs> and that's, that's such a different, um, just finding freedom and having a learning posture towards a culture, especially if you're moving abroad or living abroad, having a serve, a serving orientation mm-hmm. where you're thinking about how can I make this community better? Yep. If it's an activating skill sets and talents by teaching English. Um, how, how can I learn from this community to take home ideas or principles or behaviors to my home culture and make America better? Um, you know, that is a much more enjoyable, I think, expression of living in God's goodness um, and trusting the Holy Spirit to guide conversations with the right people in the right times. It, it in, you need more of a listening posture and more, it requires more humility. Amen. 
Richard, you've touched on a topic that I think <laughs> this is so good. We're going to we're going to make this part two and we're going to come back and talk more. You mentioned the idea of how are we a witness in class? You've already mentioned it, but I want to expand on that a little bit. So let's end this part two now and we'll we'll be back. Thanks for listening today. Feel free to email us with your questions to david at esionline.org. It's always encouraging to hear from our listeners how God is using this podcast. Our ministry is called Equipping Servants International, which exists to equip churches, organization, and individuals to reach the nations both at home and abroad. Our desire is to see people better equipped when they leave, be able to thrive and be effective on the field, and transition back home well. Our book is called Mission Smart, 15 Critical Questions to Ask Before Launching Overseas, and it's available on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to get more episodes as they're published.